a great, great song that is. I, that's one of my favorites. And can it be? Well, you just think about just the theology in that song, and uh, there's just that throwaway line in First Peter. I was thinking about First Peter just, just as I was thinking about and can it be? First Peter chapter one verse ten. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, they made careful searches and inquiries. Verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Into, things into which angels long to look. You just think about that song, that angels long to look the things pertaining to salvation because angels can't understand salvation. They can't experience salvation. One sin for an angel and he's a demon. And so angels long to understand experientially salvation and redemption and being reconciled in the love of God which is poured upon us, not them. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, not the angels, even as powerful as they are. So just a wonderful song, wonderful theology. So we are in the book of Colossians. Um, We have been in the book of Colossians for a little while now. And as you guys know, this is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. It is a letter that is written to combat false teaching that was creeping into the church. Now, one thing about the Colossian letter to remember is that it wasn't wasn't like penicillin penicillin, excuse me, for a disease that was already throughout the church. It was an inoculation to keep the disease from getting to them. So the, the false teaching was bearing its head. It was beginning to become apparent. And Epaphras travels all the way from Colossae to Rome to meet with Paul, who's in prison. And he asks, hey, I need your help in combating this teaching I see on the horizon. I see this thing bearing his head. I need your help. And so he's writing this. And, and we know this because when Paul addresses the Colossians, he doesn't use the, the wording that he used for the Galatians. Like when he speaks to the Galatians, he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, the Galatians had bought into the false teaching where the Colossians were still, and as we'll find out more today, they were still fighting against it. They were still resisting it. It was still in its early stages. And so what's great about this book, as we read this book 2,000 or so years later, is that it is an inoculation for us as well against false teaching. Because the way that the book of Colossians is written is that Paul is, is general in that it addresses many different forms of heresy, many different forms of false teaching. And we're actually going to be getting into some of that false teaching next week as we get into a little bit on philosophy. Last week we talked about this particular section. The particular section we've been in is Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 24 through 29, and then verses chapter, one, sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's one large section in Scripture. It deals with Paul's ministry, right? It deals with Paul's ministry in regard to the nature of his ministry and the objective of his ministry. And we, we talked about last week how the, Paul's ministry, the nature of his ministry, was a word-focused ministry. It was, it was Scripture, right? It was the Word of God. He preached the gospel. He suffered for the gospel. He said he, he proclaimed Christ. He admonished every man. He taught every man with all wisdom with the goal of presenting every man, every woman, complete, mature in Christ. Okay? That was the focus of the Apostle Paul's ministry and application for us today 
we have a word-focused ministry in our church. We're word-focused. We're scripture-focused. Our desire, whether it's, a, it's me as a pastor, the elders, or the teachers of all the home groups, is to present every man complete in Christ, every woman mature in Christ. That's our goal, just as it's Apostle Paul's goal. And now what we're going to be talking about this, this morning is the objective of Paul's ministry, the, the centrality, the, the center aspect of Paul's ministry, and that centrality of Paul's ministry, the centrality of ministry here at New Community Church is Jesus Christ and none other. And we're going to be looking at this morning, my wife was reading the other day, uh, she's reading Black Beauty. It's like an abridged version to my kids, and they were enjoying uh, reading about or hearing about the Black Beauty. In case you don't know, it's, a, it's about a horse. Hopefully that's spoilers. I ruined it for you. But Black Beauty is about a horse, and she's reading this book. And it's interesting because as I was kind of listening, I was doing sermon prep. My wife's reading in the background, and she, she got over this one part where the horse had been used uh, he had he'd been run hard all day and all night to come get a doctor for the family. And for those of you who know the story, the, the horse uh, wasn't treated properly when it came back to the stables. Um, and so the horse was, was sweating and basically they just put the horse up for the night. And as someone who's grown up around horses, that's not the way you want to treat horses. Um, they need to be carefully, uh, carefully cared for, especially after you run them hard, or they'll get sick. And that's what happened to Black Beauty. It became, uh, got chills, it got a fever, and it's lying there sick. And in the, in the particular story, part of the story I was listening to my wife, uh, she was talking about one of the trainers was talking to the head trainer, and he said, oh, you know, to the head trainer, you can't be too hard on the boy who did this. You know, he didn't, he didn't know what he was doing. It was, it, was, it was ignorance. Don't be too hard on this boy. And the head trainer's response is, is great. He says, only ignorance? How can you talk about only ignorance? Don't you know that it is the worst thing in the world next to wickedness? And which does the most mischief? Heaven only knows. If people can say, oh, I did not know, and I did not need any harm, they think it is all right. Brethren, Ignorance of the truth is not where you want to be. Right? You don't want to be the one making excuses for someone who's speaking false doctrine or speaking false words to you or the church and say, you know what, they didn't mean any harm. You know, we live in Adelaide's the city of churches or city of church buildings as I've come to see. Uh, it's as part of, the, part of the property committee, it's amazing how many empty church buildings that we come across. Right? How many buildings that, that at one time were vibrant places of worshiping the Lord and preaching the Scriptures, right? but not anymore. You see, deception entered into the church. And slowly by slowly, those churches lost their focus, which is to preach Christ crucified. They preached Christ, and then they stopped preaching the Word, and then they became nothing but an empty building. You see, liberal churches never duplicate themselves. Churches that deny the, the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, they do not grow. They, ended up, they end up wasting away and dying because they don't share the gospel. If you don't believe in a gospel that can change people's lives, then what are you going to share to people? There's no hope, right? So for, for you, brethren, and for all of us that are believers... Ignorance of the truth is not an excuse. We don't want to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I was just ignorant. Because what is He going to say? Well, I gave you the Scriptures. right? We live in a country, we live in a time where every one of you 
most likely has at least one or if not more copies of the Word of God in your home and on your phone, right? So you have no excuse. We don't live in a time like the Middle Ages where you had to go to the priest to even understand the Word of God because it was in Latin, right? You have the Word of God. Ignorance is not an excuse, right, for not understanding and compromising biblical truth. We are not to surrender and we are not to compromise when it comes to biblical truth. And Paul is writing to these believers so that he would give them, they would have courage and they would have strength to continue to stand against these false teachers. He wants them to to not compromise the, the centrality of Christ in their salvation. So there's no excuses. So instead of ignorance, Paul wants these believers to have confidence and assurance in what they believe. And He wants you to have confidence. And He wants you to have assurance in what you believe. When you think about what makes you confident, it's it's knowledge. We grow in our knowledge. We grow in our understanding. We become more and more confident as believers. When I was a young buck, I was a young guy, and I was sharing the gospel with people, and I would get people... People would say things back to me. They would point out holes in my argument, or they would have questions, and I didn't have the answers. I lack confidence. And as I grew in my knowledge of who Christ is and what He's done and the knowledge of God's Word, then I was able to respond to those people. And so, brother, my hope for you today is that we would understand the centrality of Christ in our lives so that we in turn would have courage and have confidence to be able to live our lives for Him, to glorify Him, right? So we have, overall, we have a, a ministry that is governed by the Word of God. We talked about that last time. And now we have Christ as central to the daily life of the church. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 of Colossians. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for all those who are in Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to the wealth, excuse me, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this that no one will delude you or, or beguile you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So we're going to be looking at four things this morning. We're going to be looking at the contest, the courage, the counsel, and the conflict. Contest, courage, counsel, and conflict, for those of you who are taking notes. So first of all, let's look at the contest in verse 1. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. The word there for struggle is the same word in verse 29. For, he says, for this purpose I labor, striving, striving, struggling. The word actually, in Greek word, we get our word agony from. Paul's in agony. He's, he's, he's struggling for them. The word here is used in an athletic contest, hence the, the, the title contest. It's used in an athletic term in Greek where you would struggle and you would strive so hard to try to achieve a goal. Paul is agonizing for these believers. He's struggling. Well, well how is he struggling? Well, we know he's praying for these believers, right? In chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 9, he says, For this reason, since the day we have heard, it, heard of it, excuse me, we have not ceased to pray for you. 
right? So Paul has been unceasing in his prayers. So he's struggling, he's striving in prayer, right? This is regular prayer for them. We also know that he's been suffering. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's been suffering for these believers. We know he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. Right? So he's praying, he's suffering, but what else is he doing? He's writing. If you flip the page, Colossians 4, chapter 16, he says, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, we don't have that letter. It wasn't an inspired part of the canon. But Paul is writing. He wrote to the Laodiceans. He wrote to the Colossians. He wrote to the Philippians. He wrote to the Ephesians. He's writing to try to help all of these churches that are a burden on his heart. Right? And who is he writing to? He says, I'm struggling for those of you in Laodicea and all those who have seen my face in verse 1. He, he loves these people. In Colossae, he's, he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, they're, they're saints and faithful brethren. They're in Christ and they're in Colossae. Right? So you have a spiritual condition in Christ and you have a physical orientation in the city of Colossae. So he, he's contesting, he's agony, he's striving, he's loving these believers enough that even though he's not present... That he's praying. He's even writing for these believers, writing to these believers, excuse me, all with the goal help to encourage them to stand firm in their faith. Right? He's also writing to the Laodiceans, as we just saw. It's interesting when you think about the church of Laodicea. Most of you immediately hear that word, and what do you think about? Revelation chapter 3, the lukewarm church. Latest, that, that, that letter was written 30 years later, right? So 30 years from the time Paul wrote them a letter and they read Colossians, they had succumbed to false teaching and they were a lukewarm church. 30 years. Can right? you imagine? Right? 30 years from now, how old we'll be. Imagine, I don't want to imagine it, but, but imagine if we did. Lake Hills, Lake Hills, sorry, Lake Hills where I came from. Lake Hills, New, New Community Church. We're succumbed to heresy, right? And we're a lukewarm church. May it never be, Right? So Paul's writing that they would not succumb to false teaching, right? He loves them. It's interesting, you know, when, when I went to Australia the first time, or I came to Australia the first time, I visited my uh, maid in Melbourne, and I was visiting his church, preached a couple times. He had me there for about three weeks. Um, my wife and I was praying at the time, should she go with me? And we were praying in January, like, ah, should, should Beth come with me, Lord? And and about uh, three weeks later, we found out she was pregnant, and we did the math, you know. And in, uh, when I went in August, she, would have, she was eight months pregnant. So we were praying that the baby would not be born while I was in Australia. Uh, and my son was two years old. And I remember my, my wife sent me this picture. It still touches my heart even now that uh, I would go on a walk with my son. I would hold his hand, and in the front of the apartment building that we lived, there was a little, um, there was a brick wall, and we would sit on the wall, and I'd sit down with him, and we'd watch the traffic go by. And my wife sent me this scene, uh, this picture, and uh, it was my son, and he was sitting there on the wall where I usually sit with him. And it, was just, it just touched my heart because normally that would be me sitting beside him. But he, I wasn't there. I and mean, he still followed through on the practice, the habit that we had gotten into. And uh, like I said, even touches, touches me now thinking about it. But you know, that's, that's Paul. Paul loves these believers and he wishes he could be with them to hold their hand, to help them, shepherd them through what he sees is the false teachers coming into the church. He loves them. Right? And he loves them enough, he's going to pray for them. He's going to write. He's, he's in agony. We're told in 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. Right? Paul loved these believers because Christ loved these believers. Right? For Paul is all about Christ. They were his body, his flock, his people. And Paul loved those believers. We are to imitate that, brethren. We are to love each other. We're the imitators of Paul in that we, we are to strive. We are to contest. We are to do whatever it takes for the body of Christ. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. And so the question is, do, do you love the fellow saints like this? Enough that if you are in prison, your only care is for others. You see, true love is a sacrifice. So not only is there a contest for Paul, there's also courage. He's praying for them. Look in verse 2. He says, I struggle. And then verse 2, he said, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ Himself, in whom is hitting all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul is praying that they would, they would have courage, that their hearts would be encouraged. When you think about the word for encourage, it means to, to come alongside someone, to, to strengthen them. In the different translations, you'll get the word comforted, strengthened, encouraged, right? Even some of the more uh, paraphrasical translations, it says to come alongside, right? So the idea is you're, you're coming alongside, you're, you're helping someone who doesn't ha- quite have the strength of heart necessary to achieve the goal, it's actually a military term that you would use for troops. They've, they've just been engaged in a battle. Maybe they lost the battle. They're regrouping and a general would come in and he would, he would give them one of those victory, those Braveheart speeches that you see in the movies where they stand in front of the troops and they, and they talk to them about the, the glory. They talk to them about their, their duty. It's kind of like Nelson at Trafalgar. Famous, famous uh, signage that he put upon his ship as the British ships were going into battle against the French and the Spanish. He put, England expects every man to do his duty. Just something as simple as that encourages and strengthens and boldens you. So Paul's writing this to, to give them courage. And he says, I want your heart to be encouraged. When we think about heart, we often think about emotion. Right? In kind of our Western world, we, we've kind of separated the, the emotions in the mind. Before, for the Greeks, it was one and the same. The heart is the, the center of your will, the center of your emotions, right? In fact, the Hebrews would actually say that, that the emotions, they would describe it as the bowels, right? Where the heart is the seat of the will, right? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it, right? Out of the overflow of the heart springs all sorts of things, right? So they would talk about the bowels. In fact, we even use that terminology when you, when you have some anxiety. What do you have? You have butterflies in the stomach, Right? We even, that's kind of that, that Hebrewism's influence in our language. Right? So the heart is a center of will and the emotions. Right? So he's in strengthening their hearts. He's not just trying to, to flatter them or, or, or excite them in an emotional frenzy. He's trying to encourage their hearts from a, from a will standpoint so they would be steadfast. Right? Do you realize that your emotions respond to your mind? We don't often think of that in that, those terminologies or that, 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 that way. Right? We, we often approach things in life as if our emotions 
are the only thing that matters, right? You say, well, I've heard, heard people say, well, you know, I'm not in love with that person anymore. Well, love is an action, right? Love is a commitment that you make. It's demonstrated by your actions, right? If you're not in love with them, then love them, right? You might not have that passion, but passion ebbs and flows. We can cultivate passion for our, for our husband, for our wife, right? So what we feel is determined by what we think, right? That's why Paul says, let your mind dwell on these things. In fact, let me flip over and read it. It says, verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These are the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Right? We have to be careful when it comes to how we feel. Just because we feel something doesn't mean it's true. Right? Our minds govern our emotions. I'll give you an example. And this is a true story and we'll change the names. But I, I knew this, uh, this lady... And she said, she came to me, she said, you know, so-and-so didn't treat me very good this, Jane, I'll make up names, Jane didn't treat me, treat me well this Sunday morning. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we're good friends. And I said, hey, to her, and she really didn't wave at me. And then she sat down kind of on the other side of the church. I started to talk to a few people, and she's kind of sulky. And she said, you know, I, I went over to say something to her, and she didn't want to talk. And she, uh, you know, then right after service, she left. She said, I'm, I'm just... You know, I've been trying to talk to her this week, and she hasn't responded to my calls. I feel like there's something between us. And I said, well, biblically speaking, you need to go to her and talk to her. And so this lady's doing mental aerobics. You know, mental aerobics, you're jumping to conclusions. You're leaping to judgments, mental aerobics. So she's doing mental aerobics in her head. And, she, and she's like, oh, I feel like, this, I feel like this, this lady, she does, she, it's my friend. She doesn't like me. So naturally, I said, well, you need to go talk to her. Like, something's going on. She went to her. Turns out the lady's been sick. She's been sick all week. She's had the flu. She came into church. She's barely there. She's, and the lady's like, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't even thinking. She said, my mind was kind of in a fog. I went home afterwards, went right to bed. You know, I've been sick. You see, this lady's feeling in her, her heart, in her mind, she's feeling like, oh, well, this lady doesn't like me anymore. Or, or something's going on when in reality she doesn't have all the information. And so she's developed all these things in her mind over and over and over. And, and her emotions are going crazy. And it's not reality. Right? So ladies and gentlemen, your, your thoughts control your emotions. That's why we, we renew our mind, right? We're conformed to Christ through the renewing of our minds. We learn the Word of God. We understand what truth is. And that's why we have to be careful with our emotions. So Paul's saying, look, I want to encourage you, not just your, your emotional state, I want to encourage you in your heart, the center of your will, so you would be steadfast against false teaching. He wants him to fight the good fight. Like we all can become disappointed and we all can become depressed when it comes to circumstances happening in our life. And that's where encouragement comes in. Right? When you encourage somebody, praise God, He's put encouragers in the church. We have the Word of God to encourage, her, encourage us excuse me, right? to come alongside us, to strengthen us when things aren't going right. That's the importance of of the body of Christ. How lonely and sad it would be to be if we walked through this life without other believers to come alongside, right? I mean, we're going to spend all eternity with us. You realize that? You think about it for a second? I try to remind myself, you know, somebody, you know, in the church, and it was like, man, I'm going to be spending all eternity with them. 
Like, Josh, I mean, I'm going to be spending all eternity with him. Can you believe that? Praise God for Josh. I'm thankful that I get a chance to know my brother now. And that's the point. We get to know each other now. Encourage each other now. Right? So Paul says, look, I want your hearts to be encouraged. And then he says, here's how I want your hearts to be encouraged. Not only by, by my words, but I want your hearts to be encouraged because I want them to be knit together in love. And he's talking about them as corporately. Right? It goes back to what I was saying. Like, we're going to be spending all eternity with each other. We might as well love each other now. Right? And when you think about love, love, biblically speaking, is a commitment empowered by the Holy Spirit to act in a self self-sacrificial way regardless of personal feelings. So let me, let me say that again. It's a commitment, so it's a choice empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the choice in which the Holy Spirit gives you strength to act, so it's actions, it's not just thoughts and emotions, but you're not only acting, but you're acting in a self-sacrificial way, right? You're thinking of others as more important and regardless of personal feelings. So that's agape love. It's a big, word, big long sentence, basically saying you're, you're choosing to love someone regardless of how you feel, even if it costs you something. Right? That's agape love, self-sacrificial love. Right? The world we live in, people love each other because they get something in return. Kind of goes back to that, that couple who doesn't know Christ and they're together and then they would say, well, you know, I'm in my marriage, I'm not really happy. My wife, she's not fulfilling me, she doesn't meet my needs, I'm not in love with her anymore, I might as well leave her and go find somebody else that's going to, what, satisfy and make me happy. Right? Because it's all about how we feel, it's all about our personal happiness. It's not love. Love's not about what makes you happy. Love is about a commitment you've made. A commitment you made to your wife. Your husband, it's about a commitment you made to God. It's about a commitment you made to those in the body, right? It's a choice to love people when they don't deserve it. What's the biggest example of that? John 3.16. For God so loved the world, what? That He gave His only begotten Son, right? We were sinners and He loved us. Did we deserve it? No, right? We were enemies, right? We were hostile, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, 21, you were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you were alienated from God. So we're to be united in love. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, and it's based off a correct understanding. Right? When, you, when you know what God's done for you, you know all the things He's done for you, and how much He's loved you, you can't help but love somebody else. Especially another person in the body of Christ, knowing that you're all united together and you're going to spend eternity with each other. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, one page over, he says, beyond all these things, and he's talking about the way we should treat each other, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Right? So we're to love each other, we're to be unified, and that love is the glue that holds us together. My son came to me yesterday, or two days ago, and he has his helicopter. And, I, and the rotor, the whole rotor section came off. And he's like, he's like, Dad, can you fix it? And I looked at it, and I said, well, I'm going to have to use some glue. And he's like, all right, go get the glue. And I'm, I'm like, no, no, man, I'm going to have to go buy some glue. And so he's like, okay, I'll wait. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm not going there this moment. Next time we go to the shops, I'll get some glue, and we'll glue it back, you know, because it needs something to hold it together, right? So love is what holds us together, right? We would fly apart. Because think about it, we're, we're not all alike, right? We're very different in our likes, 
our dislikes, right? What we like to read, what we like to watch, backgrounds, culture, right? What holds us together? Love. Love for each other. So we're knit together in love. So he's praying that their hearts would be encouraged as they're united in love. You think about the early church, they were united in love. They, they gave everything they had to each other. Now Acts, by the way, is, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. In other words, we, we don't, Acts is a, is a history of the early church. Right? We can't follow that exact history and do exactly everything the book of Acts says because that's the laying of the foundation of the church. There's no apostles, right? There's no prophets. But in Acts, they, they all gave everything they have so that no one was without anything. They did that because when you became a Christian and you were Jewish, you were excommunicated. You were kicked out of the temple. You were kicked out of the synagogues. People would stop coming to your businesses, right? You became poor, right? And so they were helping each other so that they were meeting each other's needs and they were doing it out of love. Acts 4, if you'd like to read. See, love is the glue that holds us together, right? And the false teachers, one thing about false teachers, when you think about false teaching, false teaching always seeks to separate, right? False teachers separate. They want to separate us. They want to divide and conquer, right? Think about, the, think about politics, what do what different political parties like to do? They like to say that everybody is a victim and they like to separate everybody into little groups. Because if you can separate everybody in little groups, they're easy to deal with. You can give them kind of what they want. You can promise people certain things. You can play Santa Claus, right? But you divide it versus you try to unite. Now, one thing about Oz, one thing about American money, if you look on the back of American money, if you've ever seen any American money, and I don't have any on me at the time, but it says e pluribus unum. E pluribus unum. It means out of the many, one. The idea is out of the many cultures, any immigrants that come to the United States, you make one country, right? That's the idea of the body of Christ as well. Out of the many cultures, Gentiles, Jews, male, female, slave, free, we all come together and we are in one body united in love. So Paul hopes that they be encouraged by their, their unity that's produced in the Holy Spirit as they understand the truths of Scripture. And he prays also that they would have, they would understand, look, this is an interesting sentence. He says that they would, they would have or attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. So the word here for wealth is the same word that we used in, uh, let's see, what was it? Same word used in verse 27. The riches of the glory, the, the riches, the wealth, the same words. You have the, the riches that come with full assurance of understanding, right? So all the riches, you have, what are riches, what wealth you have when you have full assurance of your salvation? We have full assurance of who Christ is and what He's done, right? The idea is to have a, a comprehensive, a clear a, a, a understanding of a divine truth, verity. Right? Verity is truth. Right? Not just a little girl. Verity is truth. You want to have verity. You want to have truth. You want to have an understanding of divine truth to the point where you're confident. Right? And not wishy-washy. So if somebody comes in to you or comes into the church and sits down and after church you're talking to them and they say something along the lines of, well, Jesus is not really God. He's Satan's brother. That's Mormon's. Right? Or Jesus just appeared to be God. He was really a man on this earth. Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? They say something along those lines. You can say, no, that is not correct. Scripture says that 
Jesus was fully God, right? And if you, if you doubt it, reread Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, when it talks about all of the deity of Jesus Christ and the fact that He created all things. He's the author of the new creation and the old creation. So what a, what a great assurance, what, what a great thing it is to have an assurance, to be fully convinced in your mind, in your heart, of who Jesus is and what He's done. Right? We have a Christ confidence. Right? I, I think about when I was younger and just the, the, the lack of confidence I had. You know, I, I, was, I, I was fearful, a fear of man. What it was is just fear of man. I, I was afraid of people. Right? I didn't want to share the gospel. I didn't want to speak to people about who I was in Christ because I, I didn't have a clear confidence, right? a complete assurance. And as I grew in my knowledge of the Word of God, right, I understand how central Christ is and I understand what He's done, who He is, and my future destiny. I became more confident in Christ and less fearful of man and more fearful of God. Right? And that's how it works. I love what John Flavel says, great Puritan. He says, A saving, though an imperfect knowledge of Christ will bring us to heaven. But a regular and methodical, as well as a saving knowledge of Him, will bring heaven to us. Right? So we can have a great and full and joyous knowledge of Christ here and now. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to know who Jesus is and experience the joy of that relationship with Him. Right? He is faithful. You know, false teachers in the church, they, they enter into the church subtly. subtly. Um, I love what Second Peter says. It says they, um, they introduce secret, introduce, secretly introduce heresies into the church. And one of, my, uh, one of the elders at the last church I was at, he, uh, he was preaching... Preaching. He was teaching through this passage, and he coined this term, and I told him, I said, Kelly, I'm going to write this down, and I'm going to give you, giving you credit for years. But he said that they are smugglers, they're smugglers of falsehood. I just love that idea. They're smuggling in falsehood in the church. They secretly introduce heresies into the church. That's false teachers, right? If they walked in the door and they had a big F on their chest and said, false teacher, you know, you'd all laugh and kick them out or run away. they they don't come in like that. That's where we get the term, what? A wolf in sheep's clothing. They secretly introduce false heresies. They, they're smugglers of falsehood. I went to Bunnings the other day. I was getting a can of paint, and I had a certain kind that I wanted. And it was interesting because they, they start out with this bright, pure white, almost like this tablecloth. It's like bright, pure white. And now, I didn't know this, but there, apparently there's like 20 shades of white. You know, I just said I need white. So then I had to go get the, the little card and match it to my wall and then figure it out. And I anyway, said, so I want this one. This is what I want. Whatever this is, this is what I want. So I go in. It's interesting how they make white. They add a little bit of gray to it, right? Add a little bit of gray. Now, if you want like a really dark gray, they add a little bit of black to the white. So they start with the base and they add other impurities, add other things to it to make the color that they want to get, right? So you add a little bit of gray. That's, that's a false teacher, right? You have the, the pure milk of the Word. You have the pure Word of God, the pure teaching. False teachers come in and, and they, they're trying to add something to it. Tradition, philosophy, a wrong worldview. They're trying to get you to compromise on the integrity, authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. They want you to add things to 
the Scriptures to your relationship with Christ and then what you get, the end product, is not as pure as what you had when you started. So false teachers come in. So Paul wants them to have not only the encouraged by unity, he wants to be encouraged by having the riches that come with a full assurance, to have full understanding of Christ, what He's done for you, of who He is, so that when false teachers come in, that you have a bulwark against that. You can say no. Okay? And he keeps going. Not only does he want you to be encouraged by having unity, encouraged by the riches of full assurance, he wants you to be encouraged by having a true knowledge of Christ. He says, verse 2, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ. What's, what's the mystery? The mystery is what's been hidden, right? Look up in verse 25 of chapter 1. He says, Paul says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed upon me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been revealed or manifested to the saints whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of the mystery among the Gentiles which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. The mystery is Christ is in you and we're in him. Right? That's the mystery. They didn't understand that in the Old Testament, that, that God Himself, God incarnate, would come to earth, satisfy the demands of the law, and live a perfect life, down a cross, sacrificially, paying the wrath of God for your sins, rise again on the third day, and ascend to the right hand of the Father in authority. They didn't understand the full scope of salvation. And then, once you accept Him as your Lord, He indwells your heart, and you become in union with Him, right? That's the mystery, right? And not only is the mystery that Christ is in us, and we're in Him, but He's in a group of individuals that aren't just Jewish, right? There's Gentiles, praise the Lord, right? I'm a pig-eating Gentile. Praise the Lord that I'm part of the body of Christ. I don't have to do the sacrificial system, Levitical system, right? There's been once and for all sacrifice for us, and that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So that you would have a, a true knowledge. That's what Paul wants them to do. So he wants them to be encouraged by the, the unity and love, encouraged by having the full assurance of their salvation, and also having a true knowledge of Christ. Right? Not, a, not a false Christ, not a partial Christ, not a Christ plus something else, but Jesus Christ Himself. And he goes even farther and look in verse 3. He says, In whom are hidden all the treasuries of are the treasuries of wisdom and knowledge. The word for treasury here is a place to store riches. So the, the treasury is the wisdom and knowledge that you have as a believer. Right? You have wisdom available to you. You go to Christ and you pray for wisdom. James says, you don't have wisdom? Ask for it. Right? The reason you don't get it is you want to use it for selfish means, is what James says. So we want to pray with, with honesty before the Lord. Lord, I need wisdom. Wisdom in how to raise my kids. Lord, how do I orchestrate my finances? How do I, I manage my time? How do I deal with unbelievers in a, in a business situation, in a, in a school situation? I need wisdom. I need to understand, Lord, how to apply the principles of Scripture to my life. And he says, you also have all the knowledge. And this is a little, a little knock against the false teachers, because the false teachers were saying, and that's what all false teachers say, they say, by the way, that you have to have our special knowledge. I was at Tea Tree Plaza the other day, and I saw this guy handing out materials. 
and I'm pretty confrontational by nature. My wife hates it, but I go up to these people and I find out who they are and what they're doing, right? Because I figure if I can disrupt them, if they're false prophets and or excuse me, false teachers and they're teaching heresy, then if I can disrupt them and get them to stop, that's just as good as anything else. Plus, also get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So I went up to this guy and said, hey, how you going? You know, what do you got? And he's trying to hand me this book. And I said, he said, oh, you know, man, this book really changed my life. And I started flipping through it and didn't have any author on it. And I'm like, well, what is it? And he goes, what really changed my life? It tells about you know, the end times, all the things that are going to happen in this world and, and a culmination. And I said, well, I can just read the book of Revelation, right? Or listen to Steve's preaching sermons on it. I, I didn't say that, but you get, I can read the book of Revelation. Why do I need this? He goes, well, this, this will tell you everything you need to know. I said, well, I have the Word of God. Why do, why do I need anything else? I said, Peter says that I have everything I need for life and godliness. Why do I need this? Oh, but this will really tell you. And I said, well, what is it? What materials? And he said, and he, he was being really general. So I just flipped through. I flipped through, and then I said, oh, okay, here it is. Put out by Adventist Press. Yeah, so you go to the publisher, because you can't hide that because it's copyrighted at the beginning. So it was, it was Ellen White's book, The Great Hope, basically Seventh-day Adventists. Right? She, she, the Seventh-day Adventists have all these different dates that it came out saying that Jesus Christ was going to turn here, and it didn't happen, he was going to turn here, it didn't happen. So what they did in order to cover their embarrassment, they, they basically developed this whole system where when you die, you know, it's not just salvation, it's not just by grace. When you die, you go to this intermediate judgment state in which, all right, yeah, you've accepted Jesus Christ by faith, but then you go to this intermediate judgment, and if you've lived a good life, then you can get in heaven. It's all based off of Jesus saying, you know, you've done enough good stuff. So they add works. Remember we talking about you, you, you take the pure and you add the impure, right? So they've added works to salvation, Seventh-day Adventists. You have to do all these things. You have to, and, and, it's, and only is it a quote-unquote good life, but it's a good life as they've determined. Right? And so over and over, she, he kept trying to say, hey, you need to read this book. You need to add this. Right? You, don't, you don't need anything else, guys. You have the knowledge that you need. And if you don't have the knowledge, you have where you can get the knowledge, and it's right here. Right? You have all the tr- you have a treasury available to you. You open it's like one of those those movies, and they you know you see the castle or the or the pirate movies, whatever. And they open up the the door to the cave or the ship, and there's just riches of treasure piled up. Guys, you have the key to the treasury of God, and it's Jesus Christ, and He has all the wisdom and all the knowledge that you need. You don't need to turn anywhere else. Somebody says you have to read some other book. In order to know what it means to please God and honor Him, be wary. Right? This is the book that you need right here. Right? So Paul wants them to be encouraged. But he also gives them counsel. Right? So he, he's talked about the contest and he's the, the courage. And now he gives them a little bit of counsel in verse 4. He says, I say to you that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Right? He doesn't want them to be deluded, or in the King James it says beguiled. I like that word, beguiled. He wants them to be beguiled, deluded. Right? Not even one person, he says that, no one, not even one person can delude you. Right? And the word for persuasive argument here is interesting because it's a, it's a false reasoning. Right? It's, a, it's, a false, it's, a, it's something that's close to the original. They're, they're presenting a point, a logical point, and then the point itself, the presupposition is wrong. And then they're coming to conclusions based off that. And it sounds really good. There's nothing wrong with logic. It all depends on what your primary presupposition is at the beginning. right? So they'll make a presupposition and they'll say something like, well, you know, 
we're all saved by grace, to use the Seventh-day Adventist as an example. We're all saved by grace, but works are important, and works are important. Works demonstrate your faith. But they would say, well, works are important. You have to, you have to live a good life, and if you live a good life, then you can get in heaven. So they, they, they combine kind of a justification, uh, sanctification doctrine. That's what the Catholic Church does, by the way. They combine the two, right? Justification is you're, you're declared righteous, Sanctification is you become Christ-like over time. Catholic churches are there together. So Paul says, I don't want anybody to delude you with persuasive arguments. It's kind of like fake plants. You know fake plants, right? They look good. I was doing these, I used to work for a window washing company when I was in, uh, I was in college, and I was doing this lady's house, and she had all these plants. And now, you know, People put their plants next to the windows, and you're trying to knock them over. I've knocked one over before, and you get water and soil on the floor, and you're just like, oh. So I'm trying to be careful, and it's having trouble washing these, these windows, these big windows with these plants in the way. Finally, I looked down, and I looked at these plants on these stands, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, they're fake. They're not real. They look really good, but you touch them, they, I mean, they look real until you get really close. So then you just move them. I'm getting these things out of the way so I can wash the windows. They're fake. Fake plants. That's like persuasive arguments, right? It looks really good. It sounds really good until you, you dig into it a little bit and you're like, it's fake. It's not real, right? Persuasive arguments, right? Logical reason. It's oratory, right? Seventh-day Adventist also, I didn't mean to talk about them the whole time, but they also hold to baptismal generation, baptismal regeneration, sorry, let me say it right, where they believe that you have to get baptized in order to, as part of your salvation, Right? If you're not baptized, you're not saved. There's other groups that believe this besides Seventh-day Adventists. But that's one of those things when I said, you know, you, it, sounds, it sounds okay at the beginning. You're like, well, you know what? Jesus said we do need to give it baptized. But wait, we, we get baptized, what, as an outward picture of what Christ has done inwardly. Right? It's, a, it's a picture. It's a declaration that you stand with Christ to the world. It's one of the ordinances of the church. But it doesn't mean you, you get saved by actually going through the process. There's no grace administered. Right? So it might sound good to start with, but then you get close, you realize it's like one of those plastic plants. It's not right. right? So, you know, I was, I was thinking, about, <clears throat> thinking about this, and I was thinking about churches. Like I said, I was thinking about Adelaide and the city of churches, and I, I found this, this illustration that was when, one, of, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading, and they were quoting John MacArthur, and he, and he was using... He was talking about delusion and the danger of, of delusion and influence into the church. And he said there's this old church in England. And on the sign in front of the building, it says, We preach Christ crucified. He said, After time, ivy grew up. And it covered the last word. And so all it said is, Well, we preach Christ. And then sometime later, ivy grew some more. And now it said, We preach. And then finally, I, ivy covered the entire sign. And the church closed. That's false teaching in the church. It comes in subtly. Subtly. And it looks good. It sounds good. But it's plastic plants. So Paul gives counsel. And then finally, there's conflict. Right? He says in verse 5, never, Even though I'm absent with you in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Right? There's, he has a solidarity with him. Even though he's not there in person, he loves him, as we've talked about. He said, even though I'm not, I'm not there presently, he said, I'm absent in body. My heart is with you. I'm there in spirit. I'm, I, I'm, I'm in solidarity with you. I'm, I'm standing firm against the false teachers because I'm writing this, right? I'm in struggling for you. I'm praying for you. 
I'm writing this letter so that you would continue to stand firm against the false teaching. Right? And he says, I rejoice at seeing or hearing. We use the same term. We say, I see something. A lot of times we say, well, I see that. What we really mean is I found out about it. Right? He found out about it. He found out about their situation from Epaphras in verse 7 of chapter 1. He said, just as you learned it from Epaphras, who's our faithful servant, Epaphras went there and told Paul what was going on so Paul could understand what was going on. But it's interesting, he says, I rejoice at seeing or hearing or learning about your good discipline and stability. These are military terms, right? I get to use all my military illustrations on this part, right? Military, good discipline. It means a line that's unbroken, Right? I went to the, in America we had a civil war, by the way, in the 1860s. Uh, it's a war of northern aggression, where the northerners decided they wanted to uh, tell, the, tell the southerners what to do, and we didn't like it, and so we rebelled. Uh, there's more to it than that. I'm a southerner, as you can tell. And uh, so from the war of northern aggression, also called the American Civil War, uh, there's one of the big battles was fought in my home state of North Carolina. It was one of the last battles uh, right before the South surrendered. And they have these reenactments. They do it on every, like, every five years to commemorate and just, just show the public what it was like. And this particular one was the 140th anniversary. And so they had 6,000 men out there in full uniform and tents. It's kind of going, like going to a Renaissance fair. I'm just kidding. I was looking at Nord. It's like going to, but it's a civil warfare. Everybody's dressed up. And now they've got everything in the muskets. And they fire these muskets. They, they, fire, they just fire blanks. So they sound. So you get, you get 1,000 troops. And they would do like, you know, 3,000 on this side and 3,000 on this side. And they're 200 cavalry. Now, I can't imagine historically hearing a, like a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 member cavalry charge. But I've heard a 200 cavalry charge. And I'm stand, you're, you're standing, you know, about, I'm sorry, say hundreds of yards, you're standing 100 meters away and you can feel the ground kind of shake and the rumble of the horses as they rumble across. And their horses are all in perfect line, right? They've trained these horses so, and, the, and the riders so they all stay in an unbroken line. And the troops in that day, because the, the weapons couldn't fire very far, they would all stand shoulder to shoulder and they would march and they would get you know, to 100 yards, less than 100 meters, and they would stand and they, they would shoot at each other. You know, and they would, sometimes they'd hit each other, sometimes they didn't. Depends on if they had the rifle barrels. But this whole reenactment, thousands of troops, and they would go off and smoke and obscure. I mean, it, was, it, was a, it was a wonderful thing, great, great learning experience. But that's the idea here is, is your stability in Christ. You're, you're presenting a solid front together, shoulder to shoulder, against the enemy. It's an unbroken, it's not, it's not a broken front. It's like World War I. They had an unbroken front from Belgium all the way to Switzerland. Right? Trench warfare, right? Whenever you tried to cross, you got shot, right? That's the idea. Paul says the stability of your faith. I'm rejoicing at seeing your, your good discipline, your good order. Sorry, I skipped down the stability, but your good order, the unbroken line. And the stability is, it kind of has the same thing. So good discipline has to do with good order, a line of soldiers. Stability has to do with a solid front. It's like ice. Ice is liquid and gets hard when it gets what? It's cold, right? So it's, it's an unbroken, both of these terms together give an idea of an unbroken front. A, a marching line of troops that's resisting the false teaching. That's what we're supposed to be. He's rejoicing at that. He's rejoicing at the fact that they're standing shoulder to shoulder and they're, they're fighting the good fight against the false teaching that's coming into the church. Right? And he says, not only that, he says, look, it's their faith in Christ. Right? Believers, we want to be known for what we're for and not what we're against. One of the things that, <clears throat> and I say that, meaning, and this is what I mean, this is what I mean by it. Um, when I was working 
in a secular job, uh, all my, not all my, a lot of people that I knew, they always wanted to talk about politics. I always, and I refused. You know, I know quite a bit about politics, but I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to talk to them about Jesus Christ, right? I didn't want them to look at me and say, oh, he's that conservative Republican ad, whatever you want on the, on the back of that. I wanted them to say, well, he's a Christian, right? So I didn't want them to know me as a Christian. I wanted to take a firm stand for the faith, right? I could have talked about politics, and Donald Trump, and anything else they wanted to talk about. But ultimately, the only thing that really matters eternally is Jesus Christ. So you want to be known for taking a stand on Christ, taking a stand on doctrine, not anything else. One of the things I taught my leadership team when I worked for a restaurant, I was teaching them, we were identifying leaders and teaching leaders and I had, had my four-legged stool in leadership, trying to make it simple. I had character, competency, calling, and chemistry. And in particular, we would look at the, the competency of someone. We would say, well, do they have a, a willingness to learn? Like this is for leadership, not just being hired. Do they have a willingness to learn? Do they have the ability to understand? And can they have and use wisdom when it comes to how they deal with people, how they deal with our customers, Right? Because I knew that if they had competency, then we could help them become a confident leader. Because if they had that competency, if they understood leadership, they understood and were willing to learn and had a humble attitude, I knew I could help them become a good leader. I could help them to be confident. Because how do you take a young leader and help them to be confident? You, it takes time and effort and learning. And that was the thing we knew we could teach them to be good leaders, right? Teach them to be confident in their abilities and confident in their position. Brethren, Paul is writing this to these believers to encourage them, to give them courage to keep Christ at the center of their lives, to stand fast against the false teachers. And that is the application for us. We are to keep Christ in the center of our lives. We are to continue to grow in our knowledge of who He is and what He's done through the Word of God. And we are to remain disciplined and to be stable in the face of false teaching. Brothers and sisters, you can do it. Right? It's not an impossible task. Because God doesn't call us to do something He doesn't empower us to do. We have the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to resist temptation, to overcome the world, and to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm against false teaching. We are to make sure that Christ is the center of our lives and the center of our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we have this encouragement. Lord, that You've written, or You had Paul write to these believers so that we, in turn, could be encouraged many thousands of years later. Lord, thank You for helping us to be united in Christ as one body, Lord, help us to continue to have assurance and confidence. Help us to understand You in a greater way that we may love You and obey You more. Lord, give us the strength to remain steadfast against error. Anything that presents itself as an alternative to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we thank You. 
Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.